Chapter 14 The first Keitha and his squadron knew of the emergency was when an entire series of amber and red warning runes flashed into life across his control console as his helmet's comm system was filled with screaming static and his craft was violently buffeted by invisible waves of energy. His veteran pilot's instincts immediately knew the cause of the power surge interference which was currently threatening to overwhelm his Fury's control systems. But his conscious mind took several vital more seconds to realise what was happening. Evasive manoeuvres! The Macarius is raising its shields! Confirmed Manatho from the cockpit space behind him. We're too close! We're caught in the flicks of the energy blockwash! Kiefer fought with the controls, powering the fury out of the grip of the invisible force which was threatening to destroy it. He fed more power to the engines, seeking to put as much distance as possible between himself and the Macarius and the energy force it was now throwing out. As the fury turned and looped in a safe course away from the massive shadow of its mothership, he caught a brief glimpse of the Dictator-class cruiser as it swung across the portside view from his cockpit. It was moving, engaging the main drive engines, the telltale plumes of plasma fire along the sides of its hull, showing that it was firing up its manoeuvring thrusters. Slowly, ponderously, the three-kilometre-long bulk of the warship was swinging round in space. They're making evasive manoeuvres, Kiefer realised, almost shouting into the squadron's comnet. They're under attack! Even as he looked, he saw the Eldar cruiser swing round towards the Macarius. In comparison with the Imperium vessel, the movements of the alien craft were lithe and graceful. It seemed almost to turn on its own axis without the visible aid of any manoeuvring thrusters. Despite the seductive grace of the manoeuvre, despite the way in which the strange craft's giant, almost sail-like appendages spread out, their delicate crystalline veins and surfaces scintillating as they caught the sunlight from Stabia's two stars, Keitha recognised the manoeuvre for exactly what it was, an attack. Now he knew he and his squadron were in even greater danger. Tiny as the Furies were in comparison to the Leviathans of the Macarius and the Eldar ship, it was highly unlikely that any of his squadron would actually be hit by the incoming weapons fire from the Eldar ship. But that was not what worried Keitha. The Macarius had its shields up now, probably at full strength judging by the amount of feedback wash which was still cutting into the Fury's own onboard systems. The shields would bear the brunt of the enemy's initial attack, protecting the ship from serious harm. But the impact of the enemy weapons fire against the powerful void shield barrier would unleash an energy burst of ferocious strength more than capable of annihilating any attack craft caught in its reach. Keitha opened up with the Fury's afterburners, punching the space fighter at speed away from the Macarius and out of the danger zone. The rest of the pilots in the patrol flight followed suit, just as the Eldar ship opened fire. Keitha saw a brilliant, stuttering stream of lance fire burst from the alien ship's prow. His cockpit surveyor screen flared brilliant red, overloaded by the readings it was receiving back as the energy beams cut through space around his flight. Despite conventional wisdom, he had to jink his fury out of harm's way as one burst of energy bolts passed lethally close to his fighter. The long, stuttering line of energy fire struck the Macarius square on, hammering against the invisible barrier of its void shields. The Eldar ship kept up the punishing torrent of fire for far longer than Keitha would have believed possible. Certainly, for far longer than the recharge capacity of any Imperium-built lance battery could have managed. Exhausted by the relentless battering they were being subjected to, 
The Macarius's void shields collapsed in an implosion of energy. The remainder of the Eldar lancefire slashed across the Imperial cruiser's hull, laying open its armoured flanks and blowing apart launch bays and shuttle docks. Wounded, violated, the Macarius still swung ponderously round in space, completing the rest of its manoeuvre. The blast wave, thrown out by the collapsing void shields, sped out in pursuit of the escaping Fury flight. Crackling bursts of electromagnetic energy and fiery plasma squalls, snapping angrily at the fighters' tails. At the head of the scattered formation, Keitha rode out the effects of the shockwave, gripping the flight controls tightly and mumbling the words of half-remembered prayers as he felt his fighter shake violently around him. Only after the dissipating shockwave had passed, only after the flashing runes on the instrumentation panel in front of him had returned to something resembling normalcy, only after the feedback scream had faded away to be replaced by an excited babble of voices from the flight controller officers aboard the Macarius, did Keitha allow himself to look at the panel, showing the squadron status runes. Four runes were still lit. Two were not. Two furies gone, destroyed by the energy wave from the collapsing void shields. Laravo and Selly. Two good pilots, two men who had been with Keitha and Storm Squadron since almost the start of the Gothic War. Finally, through the babble of Comnet voices and the communications disrupting after-effects of the shockwave, Kiefer was able to make contact with the Macarius. The orders he received were exactly what he had expected. Macarius to Storm Leader, we are under attack. Engage nearest enemy targets at once. Kiefer smiled. He didn't have to check with Manafo to find out what those nearest targets might be. Corneus's mind was a storm of cold, fierce fury. They had received word from the Volun Shou. The Monkai had betrayed them yet again. One of the Monkai ships had attacked and destroyed the Lament of Elshaw, and they had lost contact with Madabar's shield, and could only presume that it too had been destroyed. The killers of those two craft were on the loose elsewhere in the system, beyond Cornus's reach. But the human flagship was right here in front of him, already under vengeful attack from the Volun Shou, and Cornus was determined that it would not escape unpunished. With a single powerful thought command, communicated in a way which offered no opportunity for question, he directed the flight of eagle bombers towards their target. Forewarned of the Monkai's treachery, the Volun Shou had struck first, but for all its barbaric crudeness, the Monkai vessel was larger and more powerful, and Lilithan's vessel would stand little chance against it in a straight duel. Both vessels were carriers, and both would now be scrambling to launch their fighters and bomber squadrons. Whichever vessel got its attack craft into space first would almost certainly win the battle. A successful bombing attack now, on the Monkai ship's launch bays, with its flight decks crammed with fuel and munition-laden attack craft, would leave it crippled and at the mercy of the Volun Shou's other bomber wings. Cornius was determined to land that knockout blow and punish the Monkai for their endless deceit and upstart arrogance. A flicker of doubt, a mind thought, warning from Kelamon commanding the Eaglecraft on his far starboard. Passed through, Corneus's consciousness. Kelman had detected a wing of human fighter craft, speeding towards them on an intercept course. Corneus surveyed the sensor information fed to him through the bomber's infinity circuit and matrix, then dismissed his wingman's warning with a contemptuous mental shrug. A mere four craft, he almost laughed to himself. What could such things, rudely built, powerfully but crudely armed, piloted by soulless monkai animals, achieve against his own craft and crew? The answer was not long in coming. 
Suddenly, shockingly, the eagle on Corneas's near port side exploded apart, struck by a hail of las cannon fired at a range and accuracy which the Eldar commander did not think possible of mere Monkai gunnery skills. The eagle squadron split apart at his command, offering their enemies a spread of fluid, fast-moving targets, forcing them to break their own formation in response. The human fighters split into two sets of pairs, closing in on their designated targets. At Corneas's mind-thought command, one of his targets, Mahadron's craft, on the far starboard, peeled away from the others, abandoning its bomber run, but drawing off the two enemy fighters from the main battle, leaving just two of them still in the fight. The Eldar craft opened fire with their four turrets, infinity circuit-linked scatter lasers filling the space around the human fighters with bright splashing lasfire. To Corneas's almost incredulous consternation, the two Monkai craft weaved a skillful, or perhaps merely just fortunate, he thought to himself, path through the twisting maze of weapons fire. The two Furies opened fire in return, the accuracy of their fire proving that their survival so far had not been a matter of mere good fortune. The eagle on Corneas's port side spun away as missiles blew off one of its wings and shredded its tail. From the craft behind him came a collective mental death scream as a volley of las cannon fire from the other human fighter blew apart its cockpit section. The fighters flew in tandem through the midst of the dispersed eagle formation, their rear gun turrets spitting out fire at the Eldar bomber craft. Seething with fury, how could two mere Monkai craft wreak such havoc? Corneas linked into his craft's infinity circuit systems, using his own consciousness to boost the efforts of his craft's defensive turret fire. Massed fire from the linked series of shuriken cannon gored the belly of one of the fighters, flaying through plasteel armour. Fire from another of the eagles struck the other human fighter, blowing out one of its wing-mounted engines. But the eagles did not escape the exchange unscathed. Combined autocannon fire from the two furies riddled the hull of another eagle, crippling it and causing multiple casualties amongst its crew. Even through the protective firewall installed in his craft's mind-link communication systems, Corneas could easily sense the pain in the mind voice of the co-pilot of the damaged eagle. Her pilot commander was dead, blown apart by human autocannon shells. The bomber's hull was punctured in dozens of places, and she herself was badly injured, struck by shrapnel from an exploding control console. Despite her wounds and the damage to her craft, the young Eldar pilot was requesting permission to carry on towards the target. Corneas ordered her to return to the Volun Show with a single angry command. Eldar blood was too rare and precious to be wasted in noble but futilely suicidal gestures. Inwardly, he cursed to himself. Five of his eagles were gone, leaving just two of them to continue the bombing run. The Monkai had been lucky so far, but as they closed in on the target, the favour of Ashurion would be with them now, Corneas knew. One of their pursuers, the one with the crippled engine, fell back, reluctantly abandoning the chase. The other one, with the shredded fuselage, wheeled and gave pursuit, its pilot pushing his damaged craft hard to make up the lost ground between him and his targets. Had it been any other kind of being, Corneas would have been grudgingly impressed at the pilot's furious bravery and single-minded dedication to the chase. As it was, it was nothing more than Monkai. Corneas knew all the pilot was really doing was brutishly obeying its basest animal instincts to keep on fighting, even at the cost of its own life. At the speed he was pushing his crippled fighter, the foolish Monkai pilot would soon realise the error of his ways when the thing simply tore itself apart around him. 
They were close now. The shape of the target loomed up ahead of them. Defence fire flashed out from it, but the two eagles skipped effortlessly past and through, Corneas almost laughing at the predictable patterns of the human's gunnery abilities. Two of the cavernous launch bays, buried into the hull of the vessel, flared into angry life, and two separate swarms of fighters buzzed out of them, hurriedly launched and seeking targets already dangerously close to their mothership. It would take several seconds, several vital Precious seconds for the fighters to organise and acquire their targets. Corneas denied them that vital leeway, diving into the midst of one of the groups and commanding his craft's gunners to open fire. Two of the Furies exploded apart, caught in the streams of shuriken and pulse laser fire. Another few seconds, another relentless close-range burst of pulse laser fire, and another human fighter was gone. The rest scattered in panic, inadvertently opening up a path towards the target. By the time they regrouped and gave pursuit, Corneas would have already launched his missiles and be on his way back to the Volun Show. The other eagle was gone, fallen prey to the other swarm of human fighters. That made Corneas and the clusters of sonic warhead missiles carried by his eagle all the more precious. He would have to pick his target carefully. As if in answer, light flared from another launch bay, signalling more attack craft firing up for imminent launch. This was the moment when attack craft were at their most vulnerable. A successful hit on that launch bay would probably destroy an entire squadron of craft, the chain reaction explosion blowing back into the flight deck hangars beyond, destroying even more of the human ship's complement of attack craft and crippling its ability to launch any more. Cornes smiled, seeing the gaping mouth of the target launch bay open in front of him. Maldenhan, he whispered to himself thought triggering the missile firing systems. A split second later, his eagle shuddered violently. It was too soon and too violent to be the after-effects of the missile launch, Corneas knew. With a sudden sick realisation, in the remaining split second which remained of his life, he looked into his sensor systems and saw the impossible. The damaged fury, the one which should have torn itself apart long ago, was sitting on his tail and blowing his craft apart with tight, concentrated bursts of las cannon fire. Corneas's scream of rage at his unjust fate was lost in the conflagration as a las cannon shot hit one of his missile warheads, detonating it and utterly vaporising Corneas and his craft. Of the missiles which he had managed to launch, most spiralled off into space. A few, unguided and unaimed, smashed harmlessly into the densely armoured sides of the Macarius. Zane throttled back on his Fury's power systems, avoiding the expanding debris cloud which was all that remained of his target. As damaged as it was, his Fury would need little more encouragement to explode apart around him from an impact with even the smallest fragment of spinning debris. Other than the hissing of escaping air from his Fury's oxygen supply, there was no other sound in the cockpit. Certainly nothing from the space behind him, where the junked, bleeding remains of his servitor navigator still sat in place, killed by the strange, razor shards of enemy fire which had penetrated the craft in their pass right through the middle of the enemy formation. Zane permitted himself a small amount of human pleasure, offering up a prayer of thanks to the Emperor who had guided his hand in those last few moments. Machine Mind had told him that what he was trying to do was impossible, that it was almost certainly a pointless, futile gesture which would lead to the destruction of him and his craft. But Zane had not listened. Human spirit and human hands, guided by the greater hand of the Divine Emperor, had carried him through. Storm leader to Storm Six, 
Fine shooting, Zane. Return to the mechanics before that craft falls apart around you. I'll follow you in. It was the voice of Keita, trailing far behind in his own crippled fury, and carefully nursing an engine thruster which was threatening to explode apart on him any moment. Together, the two of them had almost single-handedly seen off an attack which would have left the Macarius almost defenceless against the enemy's own attack craft. Assuming they survived the battle, which was still only just beginning, another piece of Macarius legend had just been created. And the state commander returning to base was Zane's only reaction to his place in this legend. Standing at her position on the command deck of the Volun Show, Craft Master Lilithan suddenly cried out and reeled back, gripping onto her control lectern for support. Alilil and several nearby crew members rushed to her aid. She raised her head and glared at them in fury, stopping them in their tracks with a single thought command. Back. Alilil knew what that look meant. What had made his Craft Master cry out in the way she had. Standing near her, he had caught something of the psychic echo of it himself. Corneus, her soulmate, and one of the few remaining survivors of Craftworld Belshaman, was dead. Even his spirit gem, a part of him which would protect his soul from the abomination of the great enemy, was gone, vaporised along with the rest of Corneus's craft, or drifting lost and unrecoverable somewhere out there in the void. Corneus, and all he had been, was lost forever to the Eldar race, and to his still-living soulmate. Up until now, Alelil had still hoped some kind of ceasefire could be arranged with the human force. Details of what had happened to the other Eldar ships in the Stavia system were still vague and confused. Madab's shield had disappeared without trace and was presumed lost. It was assumed that it had been attacked and destroyed by one of the human vessels, although Alelil was unsure how the swift-moving Eldar frigate with its superior communications and detection capabilities could have been taken by surprise by any lumbering human warship without managing to get a warning out first. Its sister ship, Lament of Elshaw, had definitely been attacked by one of the human ships, and had been able to communicate this fact to the Volun Show before its destruction by the human cruiser's fearsome arsenal of Lance batteries. But even this dire situation was not as clear as it seemed. According to communication signals intercepted from the human craft, the human ship claimed to have come under attack first, from another as yet unidentified Eldar vessel. Unable to track down its elusive attacker, it had instead turned its guns on the Lament of Elshaw. Other human communications intercepts also suggested that the humans had lost two of their own patrol vessels. A partial signal from the Lament of Elshaw, sent just before its destruction, and as it desperately tried to disengage from battle with the larger and far more powerful human ship, suggested that it too had detected the presence of an unidentified ship in the area. Too many elements were at work, Alilil thought. Too many anomalies and strange variables. There was something deeply wrong here, he felt. Deep down in his soul, something screamed at him in warning. As second in command, as vessels Lan Keith, or Waterbringer, it was his duty to bring such doubts to the attention of his craftmaster. She was the fire which he was required to quench with water bringing harmony to the command of the Vaulun Show. But Alilil knew that the moment for such action was past, that whatever reason he might have tried to have brought to the mind of his impetuous commander would be nothing compared to the savage, vengeful emotions now sweeping through her mind. 
One glance at the set of her hate-filled features, one psychic brush with the maelstrom of her grieving, rage-possessed mind, confirmed that everything now was lost. Attack! she commanded, in a tone which dared any to try and argue otherwise. Send them all to their precious corpse, God! We'll stack them in cairns a hundred high before that living abomination they call an emperor, and it still won't be enough to make up for the loss of Cornius and the others. In the depths of the warp, the shadow point opened wider. Darkness, vivid and crawling, spilled out of it, threatening to engulf all. Somewhere near the edge of the Stabia system, Titus von Blocher, captain of the Lunar-class cruiser Graf Orlok, prepared to end his life in a manner very different from the way in which he had lived it. Blocher was not a particularly brave man, but nor was he a coward. The fact was, he had never been required to exhibit any of the greater qualities associated with a captain in the Imperial Navy at any time during his ascent through the ranks of Battlefleet Gothic. Family connections, blue-blood string-pulling, and no small element of good fortune had conspired to assure his swift and reasonably effortless rise to the position of cruiser-captain, a fact which had greatly rankled many within the battlefleet, most especially those officers of arguably greater, or at least equal, ability, but who also lacked von Blotcher's shared aristocratic family heritage with Lord Admiral Ravensburg. The outbreak of the Gothic War, which could easily have been the breaking of the man, had in fact been something of the making of him. His command skills had proven to be competent enough, and while better captains and more illustrious vessels had fallen prey to the war's ferociously endless appetite for carnage and destruction, von Blotcher and the Graf Orlok had survived, achieving enough to earn the grudging respect of many within Battlefleet Gothic. Some doubt has still remained, but... If they could see him as he was now, seated on the command deck of his ship and preparing to face his vessel's almost certain destruction, their doubts would finally have been silenced. Twelve thousand kilometres and closing, counted off a surveyor officer as they watched the enemy target icons and the August screen advance relentlessly towards them. The three chaos vessels, one carnage-class cruiser, identified by its energy signature as the despicable, a vessel which had erroneously been reported as presumed destroyed during a skirmish in the Lycidae subsector eight months ago, and two infidel-class escorts had appeared on the surveyor screens over an hour ago, following a possible warp exit energy burst some time before. Moving to investigate, and still searching for the missing frigate Mosca, the Graf Orlok had encountered the three chaos vessels on a course heading in-system towards the Macarius. Damn this pulse interference, thought von Blotcher, staring at the closing enemy target icons. If it wasn't for the random electronic noise being thrown off by the warp damn thing, they'd have been able long ago to detect the enemy squadron's approach and get a warning signal out to the Macarius and the Drakenfels. As it was, they were condemned to fight an almost suicidal holding action, unable to outrun their faster enemies, desperately trying to buy time to make contact with the other ships and warn them of this new threat. Von Blotcher's strategy so far had been simple, but relatively effective. Spreads of multiple torpedo fire had succeeded in scattering the formation of Chaos ships, even managing, at an impressively extended range, to land one successful hit on the cruiser. 
After that, he had put up a fighting retreat, deliberately leading the Chaos ships on a tangent course away from the other Imperial ships' locations, while turning every so often to fire off broadsides at his pursuers. So far, this tactic had paid off, succeeding in damaging one of the escorts and stripping the shield several times from the cruiser vessel. Now, however, the game was almost played out. And the enemy had closed to lethal range, bringing its deadly prow-mounted lance armaments to bear. For some minutes, turning to starboard and presenting its broadside flank to the enemy, the Graf Orlok was able to trade blows with the Chaos ships. A well-aimed lance strike exploded the prow of one of the escorts, possibly crippling it. Broadsides of massed turbo-laser and macro-cannon fire stripped the Carnage class once more of its shields, landing hits across its sloped topside and opening up several breaches in its hull. But outgunned and outnumbered, for every hit the Graf Orlok inflicted on its opponents, it received many more in return. Expert weapons fire from the carnage picked off Graf Orlok's two starboard side lance batteries. A torpedo strike from the undamaged Infidel penetrated through to the Engineerum section, knocking out two of the Lunar-class cruiser's plasma reactors and causing a crippling power loss just when it needed power most. The Chaos ships showed no mercy on their stricken target, relentlessly pummeling it with volleys of broadside fire. Explosions racked the Graf Orlok from prow to stern. A wave of macro-cannon impacts gutted two entire decks of the gun batteries on the starboard side and detonated one of the secondary magazines. Hundreds died in the initial explosion, thousands more in the resulting conflagration as firestorms swept through decks and galleries, consuming everything in their path. Fires burned out of control throughout the forward section of the ship, isolating more than a thousand desperate crew in the torpedo rooms. Trapped, they faced a choice between asphyxiation to death as the fires consumed the remaining oxygen in that part of the ship, or perhaps, more mercifully, dying in a sudden explosive holocaust when the advancing fires ignited either the torpedo warheads or the missile's fuel mix. On the bridge of the disintegrating ship, Titus von Blotcher issued his last order as master of the Graf Orlok. Boost all remaining power to communications arrays. The other ships must be warned. Seconds later, several direct hits on the command tower brought the roof of the command deck crashing in. Trapped beneath a gargoyle-carved support column, bleeding out onto the cracked marble floor, his legs and spine crushed. Von Blotcher could only watch in disbelief as a flickering, fading surveyor screen showed the enemy ships turning and moving away disdainfully passing up the chance to deliver the final killing blow to the helpless Imperial ship. Battle Fleet Gothic Records and the proud family history of the Ravensburg von Blotcher clan would later attest that Captain Titus von Blotcher died as he should have, giving his life valiantly in battle against the enemies of the Emperor and dying at the helm of his vessel. What such histories could not know was the true, terrible truth of the situation. Von Blotcher would die, but not at the helm of his ship, and not for many long, agonising months after the destruction of the Graf Orlok, and in a place and manner which could not be easily imagined by those who compiled such noble and glory-strewn histories. Out in space, and as arranged, the dark Eldar cruiser emerged from its hidden lurking place and bore silently and swiftly down on the dying Imperial cruiser. Even after the pillage of Medeb's shield, 
there was still plenty of room in its slave holds for the remnants of the crew of the Graf Orlok, and it was all too happy to claim the prize left to it by the Chaos ships. Monkai Flesh was a less precious and valuable commodity than the Craft World Eldar captured earlier, but there was always plenty of demand for such slave stock and torture fodder back in Kimura. A signal from the Graf Orlok, Captain! They report they're under attack from enemy vessels, a carnage-class cruiser and two escorts. And? The question hung in the air of the Macarius's command deck for a moment. The communications officer who was reporting to Semper shifted nervously, before hesitantly answering his captain. And that's all, sir. It's just a partial signal. All communications were then cut off, and we haven't been able to establish contact with the Graf Orlok since. Semper cursed. A vicious, voluble oaf which caused several nearby officers to blanch at the sound of language more fitting to deep below decks than the bridge of an imperial warship. He turned, looking towards the two figures standing nearby. A two-pronged attack. The Elder, in alliance with the Despoiler. Admiral Perdane. Could such a thing be possible? Perdane opened his mouth to answer, but it was the other figure standing behind him, one of Horst's men, who replied first. In my opinion, no, Commodore, said Monomarchus, with clinical Adeptus Mechanicus efficiency. While the Eldar are known to be a piratical race, and while many of the human pirate fleets have gone over to the enemy's side, or at least sworn oaths of fealty to the despoiler since the outset of the war, there are no reported incidences of Eldar pirates directly aiding the enemy at any point. Indeed, Inquisition records show many confirmed incidents throughout the Imperium, history where Eldar forces have, for whatever reason, actually aided Imperium forces against the servants of the powers of the war. There are also many recorded accounts to suggest that the Eldar are also not above taking direct action themselves against the servants of Chaos, independent of any Imperium involvement. Yes, burst out Pardane, and for every one of these reported instances... I can give you a dozen more proven examples of Eldar treachery. You know well enough what they're capable of, Semper. Colonies wiped out, convoys attacked, garrisons assaulted and warships ambushed. The aliens may not be in league with the Despoiler, but they've proven here yet again that they can never be trusted. I had my doubts about this endeavour, and so did Ravensburg, and now we've seen who was right all along. Horst's notion of an alliance with such a race was a brave one, but also a foolish one, as we now plainly see. There is no one single Eldar race, countered Monomarchus smoothly and calmly. Rather, my studies have revealed that there are many different factions or clan-like groupings, each one with its own distinct perspective and methods. It is a mistake to assume that the proven hostile actions of one group of Eldar reflect on the likely behaviour of another, Indeed, internecine warfare between different groups of Eldar is not unknown, and there is evidence, much of it Inquisition-sealed, to suggest that the worst atrocities ascribed to the race in general may in fact be the work of some kind of renegade faction or pariah offshoot, which is itself extremely hostile to the rest of the Eldar race. Could we be dealing with such a group here? Could Inquisitor Horst have inadvertently made contact with these pariahs? Would that explain why they have attacked our vessels? The tech priest paused before answering Semper's questions. I think not, Commodore. The Inquisitor's methods in making initial contact with the aliens were by necessity circumspect and confidential. 
but he has a thorough working knowledge of Xenos matters, and I do not believe he would be so easily duped. The Eldar we have seen here are the ones he set out to make contact with in the first place. Yes, Horst, Semper thought. He got us into this mess, but where was he now? He looked towards his communication section. Still no word from Melante, or anyone else on the planet's surface, or from the Drakenfels. Unhappy shakes of head from several communications officers gave him the answer he feared. They were on their own in orbit around this blighted world, facing an enemy in front of them, and now more in the system beyond. They had launched several ineffectual broadsides at the Eldar cruiser, watching in helpless anger as it effortlessly eluded each of them, its speed and manoeuvrability taking it out of reach of the Macarius's weapons batteries, where it hovered now, proud and mocking. The initial bomber attack on the ship had been successfully repelled, and now a dense screen of fighters surrounded it, protecting it from any further ordnance attacks. The Macarius's full complement of Starhawk bomber squadrons sat stacked in their launch bays, patiently waiting for the word to launch in a mass assault on the Eldar ship. So what were they waiting for? wondered Semper. Did his Eldar counterpart, like himself, have doubts about what was truly going on here? It was undeniably true that the Eldar ship had fired upon them first, but hadn't he been preparing to do the same, and had merely been beaten to the draw by a faster opponent? What had happened to the Mosca and the Volpoon? Where were the Eldar cruiser's own escort vessels? Why were they not coming to offer its support against the Macarius? Did the Eldar ship know of the presence of Chaos ships in the system? Were they truly, as Pardane suggested, in league with the Despoiler? There is still so much we don't understand about them, Semper thought to himself, unknowingly echoing the earlier thoughts of Horst. That's where the danger lies, in our own ignorance. Communications! We still have those open Comnat frequencies to the Eldar ship. Hard-bitten veteran Navy officers, Admiral Purdane amongst them, gawped at him in surprise. Uh, yes, sir, an astonished communications officer managed to reply. Despite the seriousness of the situation, Semper almost smiled. If Commissar Kyogen was here, he would surely already be lining up his aim to put a swift bolt around through the skull of the Macarius's captain. Open up hailing frequencies, he ordered. Tell them I want to speak, captain to captain, to their vessel's commander. A brave idea, but a foolish one. That was how Pardane had characterised Horst's gambit in initiating this whole rendezvous. In light of what happened next, barely before the words were even out of his mouth, it might equally have described the desperate and highly unorthodox strategy Semper had just tried to set in motion. Energy surge from the enemy ship's launch bays, shouted a surveyor officer. It's launching bombers! Waves of them! Chapter 15 The world known to the Imperium as Stabia had known violence before. The ancient races, which had come long before the humans, had fought their wars amongst themselves and between each other, and those wars had on occasion touched this world. After those ancient ones, following purposefully in their footsteps, had come the Eldar, the Eldar did not wage war amongst themselves, it was widely believed, although their earliest legends and most dimly recalled and secretly held histories contained much evidence to suggest otherwise. Such ancient, fratricidal conflicts had not reached Stabia, and the world had remained at peace until the Cataclysm of the Four, when the Eldar race turned on itself in one terrible, 
orgiastic moment of self-destruction. Stabia had remained undisturbed since then, but the dust that covered its surface knew the taste of blood. And the remnants of those long-vanquished civilizations dotted across the face of the planet knew well enough the sounds of screams and conflict echoing amongst their ruined palaces and thoroughfares. Now, after long millennia of silence, death had come once more to Stabia. Elante ran forward at a crouch, aware of the sounds of death from all around him, screams and shouts, mostly human, mixed with the dry crack of lasfire, the solid, angry roar of shot cannons, and the unfamiliar sound of the Eldar weapon's fire, a strange, high-pitched, sibilant hiss, even over the dull, smothering growl of the dust storm. Alante could still hear the loud insects whine of deadly projectile objects passing close by at supersonic speed. It wasn't until a senior armsman close beside him screamed and crumpled to the ground, clutching at his face, that Alante, who even with his goggles on, could see only a few metres in front of him through the swirling dust, realised that these were no random shots. The enemy was close and actively firing at him. He rolled to the ground, landing beside the twitching corpse of the armsman. The man's face was gone, torn away by the impact of whatever had struck him. In amongst the oozing ruin of where his face had been, Alante could see jagged shards of some kind of crystalline substance buried into the pulp flesh and bone of the man's skull. Smoke, or possibly poisonous vapour, arose from the terrible wound, and Alante could actually see the acidic substance of the shards dissolving as they ate a deeper path into their victim's body. The acid, or venom, seeping into the corpse's bloodstream and nervous system caused it to spasm and twitch violently, giving it the horrid illusion of life. In spite of himself, Elante shuddered. Weapons were designed to kill, yes, but whatever manner of arms the aliens were using was also designed to inflict the worst kind of suffering on anyone merely wounded or maimed by a hit from such a weapon. Cold and aloof, that was his initial impression of the Eldar. To that list, he had now happily added deceitful. But what kind of cruel and malignant being would purposefully use a weapon like that? Almost in answer, from out of the dust storm, there came a banshee shriek of malevolent pleasure, and a shape came hurtling towards him. He saw a dark silhouette, moving fast and with inhuman agility. Its body seemingly, and confusingly, made up of a series of whirling, jagged blade shapes. There were blade shapes in its hands, too, although one of them might have been a pistol of some sort, although Alante was unsure if they were actually weapons or merely extensions of its blade-constructed body. All this he saw and tried to take in during one confused and terrified second, and then a heavy-booted foot painfully trampled him into the dust. Watch yourself, sir. I'll see to this pointy-eared bastard called Barossa, stamping over his commanding officer's body as he rushed towards Olante's attacker. Inhuman speed and agility met all too human brutality and pragmatism. Barossa put a studded boot into the Eldar's stomach, bringing its charge to a bone-crunching halt. He ducked the first lightning-fast blade that came at him, but the weapon in the alien's other hand cut through the meat of his forearm to the bone. Even before Barossa had registered the pain from the strange cold metal of the alien blade, he had already dealt the creature a crushing blow with the stock of his heavy bolter, smashing the weapon down upon the creature's skull. The Eldar 
crumpled to the ground, roaring in anger, blood spurting from his wounded arm. Barossa planted a foot on the Eldar's chest, pinning it to the ground, and blew its head apart with a single heavy bolt around. Getting up, Alante saw the source of his earlier momentary confusion. The Eldar's armour and weapons were studded with long, scythe-like blade attachments. Even the long, crescent shape of its helmet was fashioned into a cruel-edged blade. The alien's armour was mixed, muted shades of black and red. Everything about the alien and its appearance signified a dark and twisted malignity. It was also quite unlike any of the Eldar Elante had seen so far here, sharing none of the bright peacock colours and delicately flamboyant design that he had seen in their weapons and armour. But he would be the first to admit that he was no damned Inquisition expert on Xenos-related matters. However, it might be different from the others. The thing lying in the dust in front of him was unmistakably still an Eldar. They had come here to cautiously rendezvous and parley with the Elder, a race with a long and bloody history of attacks on Imperium forces. Now they had come under attack from Elder. You didn't have to be some damned Adeptus Mechanicus construct to work out what was happening here, Elante thought to himself. It was left to Barossa, cursing and grinning savagely as he applied a hasty battlefield dressing to his wounded arm to unsubtly set the situation in context. Alien or no alien, he grinned, gesturing to the corpse at his feet. The bastards still bleed good enough, sir. As long as I know they can bleed, then I know I ain't going to have too much problem killing them. He took up the heavy bolter again, sending a long, chattering stream of bolter shells into the dust storm in the direction the Elder had come from, dissuading any others that might still be lurking out there from trying the same thing. Then, grabbing Alante, he ran off into the storm probing out a path ahead of them with short, menacing bursts of bolter fire. Stumbling through the confusion of the dust storm, with the muffled sounds of battle coming from all around them, they soon came across other corpses, mostly crewmen from the Macarius, but with the lifeless forms of Horst's Inquisition retinue and also several Eldar warriors mixed amongst them. Passing the corpse of one of the Eldar, Elante could not help but notice that it was twitching and jerking, in a way identical to the body of the armsman just moments ago, and that there were several identical smoking puncture wounds in its torso. A victim of alien-friendly fire, Elante wondered. Cut down in the crossfire from one of his brother Eldar? In the confusion of battle, in the urgency of the moment, there was no way of stopping to wonder what might have happened. And there were other survivors, too, looming out of the murk, appearing so quickly that Elante almost sent a brace of lad shots into them, came Horst's man Stavka, accompanied by several of his group. Following them came Commissar Kyogen, with half a squad of naval armsmen. There were casualties amongst both groups of Imperial servants, one of Stavka's men nursing the hastily cauterized stump of an arm, severed just below the elbow. There was the tell-tale glazed look of heavy doses of karma in the man's eyes, inuring him from the immediate pain and shock of his wound. They took us by surprise, coming at us from all sides, said Stavka. There was blood smeared across the Inquisition man's face, not his own, apparently, since he showed no sign of injury, and a look of fierce determination in his eyes. He gripped his weapon, an expensive and rare Forge World manufactured plasma pistol, bolt pistol, combi weapon tightly. The plasma pistol element of the weapon emitted a faint whining noise as it recharged, and the barrel gave off an acrid-smelling vapour as its internal cooling elements fought to combat the 
potentially disastrous effects of the weapon overheating. The gun had been fired recently, and repeatedly. Are there any more of you? asked Stavka, looking at the two naval men. Perhaps, but I can't raise any of them on the comm. I sent a squad to check on the shuttle, but my chief petty officer here is the only one who made it back. Stavka swore in the low Gothic dialect of his homeworld. All right, then we assume they're all dead, and what you see here is all we've got left. They've hit us hard and fast, but there's still enough of us left to do them some damage. First thing we've got to do now is find the Inquisitor and get him out of here. Melante nodded his assent. Stavka clapped him on the shoulder, grinned a humorless grin, and then led them at a sprint towards the building where Horst had been meeting with the Eldar leader. The sound of weapons fire was heaviest from that direction, although all that could be heard was the strange, mixed sounds of the aliens' guns. Briefly, Alante wondered if, in the confusion of battle and the dust storm, the Eldar had mistakenly opened fire on each other. If that were truly the case, he mused, then all the better for their own chances of survival, perhaps showing that the Emperor's favour was with them. One of Stavka's retinue, a female with a powerful physique, and primitive warrior tattoos carved into her disfigured face gave a shout of alarm. She was equipped with augmetic eyes, which could apparently see further into the murk of the storm than normal human vision, and she had clearly spotted some imminent threat. Raising her bulky grenade launcher, she sent a brace of frag grenades flying out into the dust. The action was answered seconds later by a series of explosions and the sound of alien screams as lethal hails of Razor-edged shrapnel sprayed out amongst the Eldar. The warrior woman grinned in triumph and raised the weapon to fire again, but was abruptly cut down by a volley of spinning razor-disc projectiles which cut through flesh and bone, seemingly just as easily as they cut through the dust-filled air of the storm. Struck by several of the missiles, the woman tumbled to the ground in pieces. Stavka gave a yell of anger and charged off into the dust clouds. Alante followed suit, snapping off shots with his last pistol. From out of the dusty gloom, the distinctive shapes of the Eldar began to emerge. The attack from their rear had apparently caught them by surprise, but they were reacting with bewildering speed, turning from behind the low walls and tumbled ruins they had sought cover amongst to confront the human attackers. Alante saw an alien warrior in brightly patterned armour turn the long, slender barrel of his unfamiliar-looking weapon towards them. The weapon spewed out a thin, arcing stream of fire, revealing itself to be some kind of alien flamer device. The weapon's reach was longer and more deadly than its bulkier human equivalent, the alien's aim even deadlier still. The fireball consumed two of the men from the Macarius, and one of Stavka's lieutenants, a dark-skinned mutant, wearing the glowing snake crest skin markings of one of the infamous bounty hunter clans of the feral world of Wagner's Landing. Two of the victims, immolated almost completely by the potent chemical mix of the alien weapon, were ashes almost before they hit the ground. The third, one of the Macarius men, ran onwards, blind and screaming as the fire ate hungrily away at him. One of the Eldar disc projectiles, whether mercifully intended or not, struck him and brought his agony to an abrupt end. The wave of fire rolled towards Alante, the heat of it igniting the dust in the air, as the alien continued to direct the weapon's deadly reach towards more of his intended targets. Panicking, Alante snapped off several last shots at the alien, seeing the Eldar stagger slightly as at least one of them impacted against its armour. 
Before he could recover and then readjust its aim, there was a distinctive screaming, roaring noise from somewhere close to Elante's right, and the Eldar was struck square on by an angry ball of white-hot stellar energy, killing it instantly and igniting the fuel of its flamer weapon. The Eldar and the area around it disappeared in a fiery roar, the flames from the explosion and its scattered debris casting an incandescent glow over the battlefield. Panicked by the explosion, the other Eldar pulled back to another line of ruins. Stavka crouched on the ground and fired his combi weapon at them in an expert two-handed stance, picking off at least one more of them with short, carefully controlled bursts of bolter shells. Even amongst the loud bark of the bolter fire, the complaining whine of the plasma pistol element of the weapon could clearly be heard as it recharged once more, getting ready to unleash more catastrophe into the ranks of the aliens. We've got them on the run now, shouted the ex-Arbites officer. The gruff authority in his voice, evident even over the sound of gunfire and the ever-rising howl of the storm. Don't let them regroup or try to slip round us under cover of the storm. He was moving again, Elante and the others quickly following him. Elante had his last pistol in one hand and his master-crafted naval officer's sabre in the other. The shapes of two Eldar reared up at him. A solid blast of heavy bolter fire scattered one of them in pieces back into the gloom where it had come from. Clear evidence that Barossa was still with him and watching his back. The other, too close for Alante's hive-world cutthroat guardian angel to risk a shot at, was upon the navy officer in an instant. Alante and the Eldar traded blows, fast and furiously. The metal-working skills of the long-dead craftsman who had fabricated the sabre Elante wielded, sorely tested by the impact from the strange, bone-like material of the alien's own sword. Remorselessly, he found himself losing ground to his opponent, forced to take the defensive by the alien's relentless and unorthodox fighting style. He looked into his opponent's eyes, the Eldar's face at times only a hand's breadth away from his own. In previous duels, he had been used to seeing various emotions in his enemy's visage. Hate, fear, desperation, determination. Even the faces of the most inhuman or warp-mutated servants of the Dark Powers showed some kind of emotion, even if it was often some kind of twisted glee at the thought of death, even their own. The face of the Elder betrayed nothing. Its graceful alien features were set in an expression unreadable to Elante's merely human experience. Its eyes, dark and wide, reflected back only Elante's own face, and in it, Elante saw the same expression he had seen in so many of his own opponents in the past, fear and desperation, and a growing realisation of death at the hands of a superior opponent. He felt, rather than saw, Barossa's closing presence nearby, but shouted out an angry command, forbidding the big hive world a bodyguard to interfere. Parrying a sudden thrust of the Eldar's blade, and barely managing to sidestep the alien's lightning-quick follow-through attack, Elante stepped unexpectedly into the alien's guard, too close to use his own blade, and moving before the alien could dance out of reach again and bring its own blade to bear, he used a move which owed considerably more to the vicious tenets of combat during brutal, no-holds-barred boarding actions than it did to the stylized, if lethal, etiquette of the art of Necromundian dueling, bringing his knee hard up into his opponent's groin. Melante had no idea about any peculiarities of Eldar physiology, or even what gender, if any, the alien might be, 
But the move seemed to have the desired effect. The alien grunted in pain and surprise, and staggered back for a moment. Swiftly, before the creature had a chance to recover, he swung his sabre at its exposed face, cleaving its skull. For all the Eldar's inhuman grace and speed, it died just like any other opponent Alante had slain in the past, falling heavily to the ground with a surprised gurgle. Quite a shot there, right in the bilge deck, sir, grinned Maxim, giving Alante a congratulatory clap on the shoulder. Maybe we'll make a decent bit of hard trash out of you yet. He had to duck, grabbing Alante and dragging him down with him, as the air around them was again rent with the strange, frightening sound of the alien's weapons fire. There were several screams from nearby. Alante saw one of the Inquisition bodyguards, a middle-aged Imperial Guard veteran, sprawling in the dust, disemboweled by one of the deadly razor-edged disc projectiles, and then the answering bark of the Imperial guns. The outlines of the alien warriors started to manifest themselves out of the murk of the storm. Alante checked the charge on his last pistol as Maxim ratcheted back the loading level on his heavy bolter, locking a full magazine of the lethal explosive rocket shells into place. He looked at Alante as he took aim at silhouette targets moving towards them. Maxim grinned again, shooting a glance over at the officer. Not to worry, sir. Like I said... We've seen the colour of their blood now. And Xenos bastards or not, we know that they bleed and die just like the rest of us. He was just about to fire, just about to, by his own expert estimation, shred apart the nearest two Eldar when the shout came to them from somewhere close and to their right. Hold your fire! Stop in the name of the Holy Emperor! The voice was shocking in its immediacy and there was something in the command which demanded complete and instant obedience. Almost involuntarily, and to his own very great surprise, Maxim found that his finger had frozen on the trigger, just short of sending out a long, lethal burst of bolter fire. He looked at Alante, seeing the doubt and confusion that must have been evident on his own scarred, brutal face, reflected in Alante's own expression. They both became suddenly aware that all the other sounds of gunfire had ceased, human and alien. Whatever power that voice held had apparently held sway with the Eldar too. Human and Eldar faced each other uncertainly, and in silence amidst the swirling screens of dust. The moment, probably only a few scant seconds in reality, seemed to stretch on forever in the minds of the participants. And then the spell was broken, as Horst and the others appeared. Alante and several of the others instinctively made to raise their weapons to fire at the sight of the armed Eldar accompanying the Inquisitor, especially when he saw that same tall, menacing Eldar warrior lord amongst them. An unmistakably forbidding gesture from Horst, backed up by a command in that same compelling, dictatorial tone, brought a swift end to such intentions. I said cease fire. You do well to consider those words as immutable as if they were handed down to you from the Golden Throne itself. Alante's weapon dropped down to his side, and he rose to his feet. The others did likewise, as did the Eldar. The old Eldar, some kind of seer or lord, Alante surmised, walked beside Horst, his presence commanding instant respect and obedience from the other Eldar. He heard no words from the Eldar Lord and saw little in the way of commanding gestures, but somehow the same command which had frozen the human combatants in place 
also communicated itself through the ranks of the aliens. The Eldar also lowered their weapons and pulled back a short distance, standing wearily and suspiciously, eyeing their opponents while Horst, the Eldar Lord and the Eldar's peacock-attired bodyguards, held the ground between the two hostile groups. Suddenly, the Eldar ranks opened, and the tall, menacing Eldar warrior lord strode forward, gesturing angrily at the seer. The seer's bodyguards clustered nervously around their lord, uneasy at the presence of the armed humans and the anger of the knight. Elante strained to hear over the smothering sound of the dust storm, catching only snatches of the alien's strange, lilting musical speech, shrewdly noticing that as much seemed to be communicated in silent gesture or body stance as it was in actual speech, noticing too the strange moments of silence and stillness in the conversation, which would then resume without apparent interruption, almost as if the aliens had some secret means of communicating between themselves. The knight's voice became more strident, notes of unhappy discord evident in the aliens' lyrical-sounding language. The bodyguard's unease increased. Finally, at a gesture from the seer, one of the bodyguards threw something down on the ground before the knight. The effect was instantaneous. The knight stepped back almost in fear. His own group of warriors, catching sight of it, also drew back in revulsion from the object lying in the dust at the knight's feet. The seer bent down and picked it up, holding it up for all to see. Elante saw it was an armoured helm, black, barbed and sinister unmistakably similar to the one worn by the strange dark-armoured Eldar warrior that Barossa had killed earlier in the battle. The Eldar saw what their lord was holding, and even over the sound of the storm, Elante and the other humans witnessing all this heard the word, half whispered in fear, half shouted in revulsion, which rippled through the aliens' ranks like a palpable wave of shock. Drukari, they said amongst themselves making the strange words sound like a curse. We have been betrayed, Doradius. Both we and the humans, the Dark Ones, the Drukari, are here amongst us, spreading their deceit and setting us and the humans against each other. Doradius stared at the hateful mask in Caradriel's hand. Like many of his race, especially those of the Aspect warrior castes, he was suspicious and hostile to all humankind, and all too ready to believe that they had been betrayed by the humans. It would not be the first time that the followers of the human corpse god had turned on the Eldar, and Doradius doubted that it would be the last. Nevertheless, the Eldar warrior was unable to deny the evidence in the Farseer's hand. He had fought the Dark Ones before, and knew well enough the kind of trickery and deceit they were capable of, and seemed all but second nature to them. Still, with his own eyes, had he not just seen the humans turning their guns on his own people? The two things, an innate and deep-seated suspicion of the humans, and the equally deep-buried dread of his race's own darker, one-time kinsfolk, fought for supremacy in the mind of the neophyte exarch. Sensing the confusion in her commander's mind, Freya, one of the striking scorpion warriors and kinsman to the Farseer Lord, stepped forward, making the third aspect of the fourth gesture of respect, respect due to a war leader, from a notable lieutenant, as she did so. What the Lord Farseer says is true, Doradios. The Drakari are upon us. They must have come through another webway portal elsewhere on the planet's surface and closed in on us under the cover of the storm. She pointed off into the storm-hidden distance behind her. The ones I encountered came from the south, 
At first we thought, like you did, that the Monkai had betrayed us. Then I found the first Rukari corpse lying amongst three of my brethren. She broke off, pointing grimly to the object still held by Caradriel. I tucked that off it and brought it to the Lord Farseer. Freya and the other elder relaxed somewhat, seeing the subtle but unmistakable signs of understanding and belief in the shifting stance of Doradios's body language. Nevertheless, the same tone of hostile suspicion remained in his spoken words. And the Monkai? he asked. My people have been attacked too, answered Horst, in inelegantly phrased but adequately spoken elder, in one of the older trading dialects used amongst those elder who travelled widely amongst the many different craft worlds and exodite colonies. Look upon them, Lord Deradius. Can you not see the marks of battle upon many of them? We have not betrayed you, and your enemies are our enemies also. The elder knight blinked once in a show of startled reaction. He had never before encountered a human who could speak, however inelegantly, the language of his people, nor had he even heard of such a thing. There were those amongst his kind who sneered that the language of the Monkai was little better than the crude grunting and snarling of orcs, and other lower classes of animals, and it was widely believed that the subtleties of the Eldar language, with its many hidden meanings and additional mind-speech and body-gesture inflection, was far beyond human comprehension. A Monkai with the gift of speaking the Eldar language, and possibly other hidden gifts as well. This Monkai, this Inquisitor, as humans seemed to term their sage warlords, was either some kind of racial aberration or disturbing evidence that he and many of his brethren might have dangerously underestimated the humans and their abilities, Doradios realised. Now is not the time to debate such matters, though. In the distance, over the noise of the storm, his keen Eldar senses were already picking at the sound of the thin, rising whine of approaching danger. The humans had not yet detected it, but already Doradios and several of the other Elder were exchanging warning gestures and urgent mind-speech alerts. Dakai Lithali! shouted Doradios, aloud in warning to the others, who may not yet have sensed the danger. The Eldar Knight shouted something unintelligible, and the surrounding Eldar reached for their weapons in some response to their leader's command. Alante was just reaching for his own holstered lance pistol, when suddenly and without warning, the new threat came out of the dust storm at them. Dakalifili. Jet bikes. Stavka ran forward, roaring in anger to protect Horst, just as something came speeding out of the dust screen. Alante glimpsed gleaming dark metal and barbed blade edges, honed to a cruel perfection. And then there came a sound like something you would hear from a butcher's shop or execution block, and a thin wetness spread across his face. The object was passed before Alante had even registered what it really was, and Stavka fell to the ground in two sections, the top half of his body landing a metre from the lower part, his mouth incredibly trying to form words, as his twitching hand reached out pathetically towards the fallen pistol lying nearby. A few moments later, mercifully, he died with a final shudder. The object that had killed him, some kind of small alien jet vehicle, Elante realised, flew into the dust storm again, its rider brandishing a sword in triumph. The Inquisition man's blood still wet on the vicious wing blades, jutting out from the sides of the vehicle. More of them coming! Defend yourselves! shouted Horst, as more of the alien engine noises came to them over the sound of the storm. 
The words were barely out of the Inquisitor's mouth before the alien jet bike assault was upon them. Alante saw one Eldar lose his head to a passing sword sweep from one of the jet bike riders, while one of the Macarius's armsmen was swept off his feet by another of the attackers. One moment, the man was standing several metres away, trying to draw a bead on the fast-moving alien vehicles with his unwieldy shot cannon, and the next he was gone, carried screaming off into the storm, impaled on the prow blades of one of the vehicles which had struck him full on. Alante fired off several las rounds at the speeding targets, but at best only succeeded in managing a glancing hit or two off the black, chitin-like armour of one of them. Any attempt to make any improvements to his marksmanship was rudely interrupted by the screaming engine sound of another one of the vehicles coming straight at him. He ducked just in time, avoiding the wing scythes, and then had to keep on moving, rolling across the ground as the vehicle's angry rider swung out at him with a short-hafted polearm weapon. Ulante rolled, the weapon blade slicing a line in the ground just beside his head, and then the vehicle was gone, speeding off into the cover of the storm. Its rider no doubt intending to make a tight, sweeping turn and come back to finish off his elusive target. Ulante came out of the roll, sending a flurry of las rounds into the storm in the same direction the vehicle was going. His aim was guided more by sound than sight, following the noise of the vehicle's strange alien power source. The glowing las shots were instantly swallowed by the dust storm, and Alante was none the wiser if they had had any effect or not. When, through the howl of the storm, he thought he heard a more urgent note creep into the sound of the alien vehicle's engine. Alante had no idea how these alien craft operated or what kind of power source they used, but the sound made by a damaged and stricken engine was unmistakable. The overstretched pitch of the thing's power source grew in volume, becoming a loud, complaining whine, before abruptly fading away to almost nothing, then completely disappearing. Alante could have sworn he heard the sound of an impact over the noise of the storm and the surrounding gunfight, but could not be certain. Reasonably assured that the vehicle and its rider would not be returning for a second attack, he turned his attention back to the rest of the battle. The second wave, or perhaps merely the first wave, returning to attack again of jet bike riders were coming in at them now. Two more of the Eldar went down, cut apart by streams of projectile fire from the oncoming vehicles. The Eldar on the jet bikes, for that was what they were, Alante realised, even if they were members of some rival faction within the same race, were mostly ignoring the men from the Macarius and were instead concentrating their fire on their erstwhile brethren. Whatever the cause of this seeming hatred for the Eldar led by the Knight and the Sage, the Imperium men were more than happy to take full advantage of the fact. Maxim knelt and took aim with the heavy bolter, patiently tracking one of the speeding enemy vehicles and then pressing and holding down the trigger and sending out a long, stuttering stream of fire. Maxim was not exactly a marksman with the heavy bolter, but the point of a weapon like a heavy bolter with its high firing rate and lethal stopping power, was that you didn't have to be. With a weapon like this, all you had to do was fire off enough explosive tip rocket shell rounds, and you would eventually achieve the desired purpose. The air around the jet bike and its rider was suddenly filled with screaming, glowing tracer rounds. The rider tried to swerve a path through them, and for a moment it looked like he might actually succeed. Then a round struck the vehicle's nose, shattering its armour, while at the same time several ripped through the engine innards at its rear. 
The vehicle dipped towards the ground. The rider opened his mouth to scream a curse, but then several more heavy bolter shells struck home and blew him out of the saddle. The burning, riderless vehicle crashed into the ground, exploding apart and transforming itself into a hail of razor-edged fragments, lethal to humans and Eldar alike. Meanwhile, if the Eldar were the targets of some special enmity from their darker soul kin, then it was a hatred which they returned with equal fervour. Eldar warriors knelt or stood, holding their ground, returning fire at the oncoming wave of jet bikes. The air was filled with deadly, whistling razor discs and crystalline splinters from the different alien weapons, and several Eldar screamed and fell, struck down by enemy fire, while more than one jet bike suddenly swerved away, the vehicle or its rider hit by fire from the Eldar disc weapons. One of the sages' peacock-attired bodyguards, a fearsome-looking Eldar female warrior in delicate bone-white armour and flaming red face mask, ran forward to meet a jet bike which had peeled off towards where the Eldar sage lord stood. Pirouetting through a hail of fire from the vehicle and its rider, she leapt into the air, emitting a loud and inhuman mask-amplified piercing shriek as she did so. Passing over the top of her target, she struck out with the crackling power sword in her hand, neatly decapitating the jetbike rider as he passed beneath her. She landed nimbly on her feet, but was unable to evade the first vehicle's partner, which brutally rode her down, ripping her apart with a burst from its nose-mounted weapon. Another of the Eldar bodyguards, a warrior in glittering, flame-decorated heavy armour, gave a cry of anger and swung round the barrel of his heavy weapon, immolating both jetbike and rider in a blast of searing heat energy. Two of the other riders bore down on Doradios, perhaps drawn in by the Eldar Aspect Lord's commanding presence and ancient ornate armour. Doradios unsaddled one of them with a single lethal shot from his las pistol, and then stood his ground in challenge to the remaining one, lowering his pistol and brandishing his power sword in a show of unmistakable invitation to the other attacker. It was a challenge which was enthusiastically taken up. The second rider discarded her own pistol and took up a scythe-like lance weapon, snarling in anticipation as she increased her vehicle's acceleration and bore down on her intended victim. Doradios continued to stand his ground, unblinking as he stared down the approaching bike and its rider, apparently heedless of the weapon in the rider's hand, or the blades mounted in vicious, sweeping patterns along the length of the biker's flanks. Then the bike and its rider were upon him. Doradios leapt, jumping clear of the lethal blades that passed centimetres beneath his body, swinging his sword out in mid-air to meet the blow from the rider's lance scythe. The buzzing energy sheath which surrounded the ancient blade, shearing through both the haft of the Dark Eldar weapon and the hand which held it. The hand and the broken weapon fell away, and the bike and its crippled, cursing rider passed by, apparently escaping. Doradios knew otherwise. The last pistol, holstered against his leg, seemed to actually leap unbidden into the Eldar's hand, even though he had never even tried to reach for it, and then, still in mid-air, he shot the Eldar rider three times through the back. She slumped forward, dead across the vehicle's controls, and the bike spun out of control, crashing into the rubble ten metres away. Doradios's feet touched the ground again, just as the bike exploded. The entire duel had happened in the blink of an eye. Watching almost mesmerised by the incident, and only able to mentally reconstruct the sequence of events after they had happened, Alante was stunned by the Eldar warrior's devastating show of speed and masterful precision. 
Remembering his own recent and hard-won duel with an elder who had appeared to be nothing more than an ordinary rank-and-file warrior, Alante was forced to an unhappy consideration of how he would have fared in combat against a warrior like this knight. It did not make for pleasant thinking. Alante saw the elder look towards him for a second, almost as if it sensed something of his thoughts. But then, abruptly, the alien turned away again, raising his weapons and calling out urgent warnings to his kinsmen. Beware! More of the accursed ones! They have raider vehicles! The words were barely out of the neophyte exarch's mouth before the first dark shape glided ominously out of the dusty murk. The Eldar instantly directed their weapons fire at it, but the cannon weapon mounted on the armoured skimmer vehicle's prow swivelled round and unleashed a blast of dark-hazed energy at them. Disintegrator, the same horrified mind-speech thought, flashed through the minds of all the Eldar, just as two of Freya's striking scorpion brethren were struck by the weapon strike, and were instantly wreathed in a dark halo of crackling black energy. When the dazzling black energy glow faded away, all that remained of the two aspect warriors was two fused, smoking masses of twisted bone and armour fragments. Sharion, of the Dark Reapers, stepped forward, picking off the disintegrator's lance and its gunner with an expert shot from his missile launcher. But the Dark Eldar skimmer continued to advance, its narrow deck crowded with more battle-eager Dark Eldar warriors, while behind it the shapes of several more fast assault vehicles appeared out of the gloom, accompanied by scattered lines of infantry on foot. The Drakari, the Dark Ones, had arrived on this world in force, but Doradios and his brethren, as well as their human allies, were clearly outnumbered. We must retreat, warned one of Freya's remaining scorpions in mind-speech thought. They are too many and we are too few. That cannot be done, mind spoke Caradriel, the Farseer's voice commanding instant respect from all the other Eldar. The webway gate link to this place is weak and damaged by age and neglect. It is closed now, and will require too much time to reopen, time which the Jukari will not allow us. Then, what are we to do? asked one of the mid-ranking guardian warriors. We flee, commanded Doradios, tinging his mind-speech words with the power of his aspect rank, in a clear indication that, as the most senior warrior here, this was a military command decision, not to be questioned even by Caradriel. We must protect the Lord Farseer. He is all that is important here. You will hide from the Drakari, and you will await rescue from the Volun Show and the other craft of ours who are here to watch over us. And what of you, Lord Duradius? The question came from Caradriel. Even though the Aspect Lord suspected that the wise old Farseer already knew the answer. I will remain here, Lord Farseer, the Aspect Warrior Commander replied, to face the Drakari and allow you more time to escape. I pass the favour of Asurion to your blood kinsman Freya. To her now falls the duty of protecting you. There was a chorus of mind-speech voices from the other warriors, many of them beseeching the Aspect Lord to rethink his decision to stay and fight alone, some of them requesting permission to join him in his stand. He silenced them all with a single irrevocable mind-speech command. Man the humans, asked Caradriel. What will become of them? With your permission, Lord Farseer, we will go with you. It was the voice of Horst, spoken in slightly awkward but still comprehensible mind-speech. Shock and consternation, quickly masked, flashed through the minds of the Eldar. 
How much of their mind-speech conversation had the human been able to listen in on and understand, they asked themselves in fearful doubt. Horse continued, making no show of noticing the alarm he had caused amongst the aliens. As I said, your enemies are our enemies too, Lord Farseer. We wish no harm to come to you and your companions, and our ship is also in orbit above us. Perhaps they will come with your people to rescue us from our mutual enemies. So shall it be, Gradual commanded, ending any further complaints or doubts from any of the assembled Eldar. With the issue settled, the Eldar immediately began to follow their designated tasks for the chosen course of action. To the watching humans, it must have seemed as if the Eldar were able to act together in eerie, silent synchronization. for, in real time, the mind-speech conversation amongst them had only lasted a few moments. Lieutenant Alante, ordered Horst, drawing the remnants of his own people around him and running over towards the contingent of navy men. We're pulling back. Get your people together. Anyone that can walk and still hold a weapon is coming with us. Quickly, moving together, the two groups moved off away from the advancing Dark Eldar and into the safety of the cover of the dust storm. Behind them, Duradios and the small group of Aspect warriors who had elected to stay with him, prepared to sell their lives dearly in combat against those who were once their kin. They ran through the storm, Maxim staying close behind Alante, barely slowed down by the extra weight of the heavy bolter he carried. The Eldar, Naturally faster moving and less encumbered by the clumsier equipment, weapons and armour of the humans were ahead, forging a path through the storm, although several of them ran behind, forming a small vanguard to guard the two groups' retreat, which left only the flanks to worry about, thought Maxim, holding the heavy weapon alertly and peering through his goggles into the depths of the storm around them, trying to detect any sign of danger. It was not his eyes, but his ears. Finally tuned for survival by the brutal necessities of existence on the hive world of Stranovar and its orbiting prison moon, Lubyanka, which warned him of the first signs of approaching danger. Jet bikes! he shouted, swinging the barrel of the heavy bolt around in the direction that the now familiar thin whining sound was coming from. They must fancy having another shot at us! Forewarned, the others in the party swung their weapons round in the same direction. Maxim opened fire with the bolter weapon, spraying a non-stop stream of shots out in a generously wide arc, not even able to see what he was shooting at, but desperate to lay down a heavy field of fire in the path of the oncoming vehicles. A second later, the crash of shot cannons and crack of Laz weapons signalled that the rest of the human group was following his lead. Two Dark Eldar jet bikes roared out of the murk, spraying weapons fire into the midst of the Imperial troops. Maxim heard screams and the fearful whisper of the deadly alien projectiles passing close by, but the sounds were immediately drowned out by the chattering boom of the heavy bolter as he fired off a second long burst at the oncoming targets. One of the vehicles targeted him directly, drawn in by the threat of the heavy bolter. Maxim's second or third burst of fire blew apart its nose, bringing an end to the splinter rifle shots now hissing dangerously close to him. The bike, although damaged, still kept on coming. Its rider drew a pistol weapon and sprayed shots at two nearby armsmen who were drawing a bead on him with their shot cannons. The razor-edged alien projectiles took one of them off at the knees, effortlessly slicing through flesh and bone. Cursing, Maxim readjusted his aim, zeroing in on the rider's central body mass and pressing the trigger again. But the bolter only fired off a handful of shells before its cyclic firing mechanism suddenly juddered to a halt. Ammo jam. 
The jet bike rider grinned, sensing its target's predicament, and lowered its pistol, manoeuvring the bike to bring its blade weapons to bear on Maxim. Maxim judged the closing distance between him and his would-be slayer, and compared that to how quickly he could draw, aim, and fire any one of the several pistols he was carrying. The likely answer to that equation was not encouraging, so he did the only thing he could, hefting the now useless bolter weapon and hurling it with all his considerable strength into the face of the oncoming alien vehicle. It struck the rider with bone-crushing force, knocking him clear out of the saddle. The riderless craft spun past, its momentum carrying it forward, and Maxim still had to duck and twist gymnastically to avoid the fate the vehicle's rider had intended for him. Nevertheless, the edge of one of the sweeping tail blades still clipped him, and he hissed in pain as he felt the chill alien metal slice for the meat of his shoulder. Clutching at the wound with one hand while drawing an auto pistol with the other, he instinctively scanned the area for any other targets, and was relieved to see that, for the moment at least, the danger was over. The other bike had been brought down by massed volleys of shot cannon and lasfire, but the cost to the Imperium force had been heavy. A force retinue, only in the Inquisitor himself, and three of his bodyguard remained, while of the party from the Macarius only Maxim, Olante, a chief armsman, and four of his troopers were left standing. And Kyogen, although, from the looks of things, Maxim was delighted to note, the issue of the ship's commissar would seemingly not be a problem for much longer. The big naval commissar officer had been struck low in the back by a shot from one of the alien weapons. There was a lot of blood soaking through the thick material of his commissar's coat, probably a punctured kidney, and, under the current situation, almost certainly fatal, was Maxim's expert judgment. And the skin of the man's face was pale and waxy looking from shock and blood loss, and tight with pain. He was a goner, Maxim knew, so perhaps the situation wasn't such a complete cluster frag after all. Perhaps those prayer-droning boars in the ecclesiarchy were right after all, the big hive world, I thought, and that amongst even the darkest catastrophe, there was a hidden blessing from the Emperor. We've got to keep on moving, ordered Alante. Gather up any spare weapons, and especially ammo supplies from their corpses. Emperor knows, I imagine, we'll be needing every round we can lay our hands on soon enough. He broke off, looking at the injured Commissar. Maxim, see to Commissar Kyogen. We're taking him with us, and you're the strongest back we've got. Maxim grinned as he bent down towards Kyogen, his grin spreading a little wider as he heard the sniffled grunt of pain from the man as he laid hands on him and roughly raised him to his feet. Come on then, Commissar, sir. You heard what the lieutenant said. Time to be moving on. No need to worry, though. Old Maxim's here to look after you. They moved off again, looking for refuge deeper within the heart of the storm, seeking another place of shelter somewhere amongst the planet's inhospitable surface. Behind them, back at the ruins, the sounds of distant combat could still be heard. Black smoke from the burning Eldar raider craft drifted in thick banks across the battlefield, mixing with the effects of the dust storm and further adding to the confusion. Duradios, dropping his spent Laz pistol and taking up an almost fully loaded shuriken catapult from the hand of a dead dire Avenger warrior, gave up a silent mind-speech prayer of thanks for the favour of Ashurion, knowing that this confusion benefited him far more than his enemy. It was Carrion who had sown the seeds of that confusion, moving swiftly and nimbly through the shifting dust-storm eddies, firing off shots from his missile launcher, almost every shot striking its target without fail, 
After each shot, the cunning dire reaper warrior had vanished back into the cover of the storm again, leaving behind him only the sounds of blazing destruction and the angry, frustrated cries of his dark Eldar hunters. Doradios and the others had covered for him, drawing the hated Drakari away from Carrion, even at the cost of their own lives, and allowing the veteran aspect warrior to accomplish his set task. It had been minutes since Doradios had heard the trademark roar of Carrion's missile launcher speaking in anger, and he knew that the Dark Reaper warrior was dead now, since he had heard Carrion's mind-speech death cry as finally hunted down and hacked apart by the talons and finger blades of some of the Jakari's most twisted and mindless servant things, Carrion had commended his soul to the safekeeping of his brethren and detonated his remaining stack of missiles, dispatching his killers into the ever-hungry maw of the great enemy. Nevertheless, the burning wrecks of the free destroyed Jakari raider craft were testimony to the effectiveness of Carrion's tactics. If the Jakari planned to pursue Caradriel and the others, then they would surely now have to do so without the advantage of their deadly and lightning-fast skimmer craft. Another sound tore through the noise of the storm, a terrible wailing screaming sound, the deaf scream of a howling banshee, that of Alarielli. He knew. He had not known her well, for she was young and had only recently begun her journey on the path of the warrior aspect, but she had fought and died well, and her aspect brethren amongst the warrior path shrines back on An Eulsis, would honour her spirit. She was the last of those who had elected to stay behind with Deradios, and now only the Aspect Lord remained. He knew now that his task was even more vital than ever. Every second he further delayed the Drakari, every drop of extra blood he shed here increased the survival chances of Lord Farseer Caradriel and the others. The shapes of several Dark Eldar warriors loomed up before him, calling to each other in their own debased version of true Eldar speech. To Doradios, even the crude word shapes made by the mouth of the Monkai Inquisitor when he had endeavoured to speak the Eldar tongue were more honest and acceptable than the sound of the maliciously twisted but still recognisable parody of Eldar speech spoken by these Drakari. Forewarned by a prescient sense which he had become more and more aware of, the closer he drew to the level of true Exarch, Doradios raised and fired the shuriken catapult before his eyes had even properly picked out the silhouettes of the two approaching targets. Both of them crumbled silently, near decapitated by the expertly directed hail of razor discs, neither of them even able to get out any kind of final mind-speech death cry that Doradios could detect, if in fact fallen abominations such as the Jukari still retained such abilities. Nevertheless... No matter how swiftly and silently they had been executed, the deaths had still been detected, and others of their kind were already converging on him from all around. Pain and death, that is what the Jakari thrive upon, thought Doradios, as he dispatched another over-eager Dark Eldar pursuer with a shot from his shuriken weapon. Perhaps that was what their vestigial psychic senses were attuned to now, and that was what drew them in. More of them came at him, the shuriken catapult in his hand whispered once, twice, three times, and then he discarded it and drew his power sword in one smooth, quick reflex gesture as the next wave of them attacked. Something screeching, with venom dripping barbs where its hands had once been, threw itself at him. He cut it in half with one sweep of his power sword, leaping clear to avoid becoming entangled in the thing's potentially lethal death flails. Another 
twisted abomination, another product of the pain artistry of the Drakari torture masters, followed in close behind its sibling. It too died swiftly, beneath the Aspect Lord's blade. Still more of them charged, and Daradios slew them all in turn. These things were nothing more than pets, he realised, grotesques created in the laboratories and torture gardens of the Jakari's hidden fastness for the Dark One's own amusement and hunger for cruelty and pain. They were using them now to wear him down, he knew, to test his strength and speed without risk to themselves. They were out there somewhere in the gloom, watching and studying him, circling round as they waited for the right moment to attack and take him unaware. Well, let them come, he thought to himself. No matter how many of their pets they sent against him, they would find him ready. His power sword rose and fell, the energy current running in a glowing sheen across the surface of his rune-decorated blade, almost singing as it cleaved through Drakari-altered flesh and bone, bringing a merciful end to the existences of things which may once have been living sentient beings before they fell into the hands of the Dark Ones. As he fought, Doradios felt his psychic senses and martial skills merge together and become heightened to a degree he had never before experienced or suspected could be possible. Every blow he struck unerringly found its target, every move his opponents made, even their death spasms had been anticipated by him seconds earlier. He felt parts of his life, whole centuries of experience, memories of valued friends and precious remembered lovers, slewing away. All that mattered was the here and now, and the joy of combat and killing. In his mind's eye, he saw the lonely, final pinnacle at the end of the path of the warrior, and he knew that he was now ascending to that place, now on the cusp of becoming a true exarch, of abandoning all he had once been and could still be, instead giving himself over wholly and completely to the warrior aspect. Some rational part within him mourned the loss of self, but the greater part... Of all that remained, now rejoiced in the freedom of combat and slaughter, so different from the paths followed by many of his kinsmen. He fought and killed with wanton abandon. His enemies died around him, and as they died, so too did the mind and spirit of the being once known as Doradios. He was an empty shell now, hollow and spiritless, living only for combat and killing the enemies of his race. And then, suddenly, there were no more Drakari things to kill, and the Drakari lord and his retinue were making their assault. Despite his anticipation of the attack, though, Doradios was still almost fatally caught by surprise. There were five of them, the Drakari lord and four of his squires. They moved swiftly and with lethal intent, but little of the ill-cautioned eagerness which seemed to be the mark of many of their kind. The lord led the attack, but Doradios's exarch-elevated senses saw him as little more than a dark, shifting blur. Doradios could see the squires and their intent with perfect clarity, could see ahead to what they would be doing vital moments in the future. But to Doradios's prescient senses, the Drakari Lord was a blind spot, his actions taking place in so many different, unknowable futures. It was the Ferrisoko, the shadow point, Doradios realised with a shock. Part of it was centred around this Drakari Lord, concealing him and his actions from the perceptions of those blessed with the gift of future sight. Suddenly, the Drakari commander was transformed into a far more dangerous and ominous opponent than he had seen just seconds ago. The Drakari lord came on. Doradios stood ready to meet him, 
Then suddenly, at the last moment, the Dark Elder drew back, allowing the henchmen to his left and right to launch their own simultaneous attacks on the Aspect Lord. Doradios had not seen the move coming. The forces of the Ferrisorco that surrounded the Jukari Lord had left him blind to the ploy, and was almost skewered on the blade of the henchman to his left, while only the quickest parrying thrust from the point of his power sword saved him from a similar attack from the enemy on his right. Doradios leapt up and back, avoiding his two opponents' lightning-quick follow-up attacks, all the time aware that the third Drakari was circling round towards his unprotected back. His leap brought him down on top of this third enemy, his power sword cleaving through the Drakari's body from shoulder to sternum before the Drakari had even registered the manoeuvre. Still in mid-air, before his feet had touched the ground, Doradios brought the sword round in a tight sweep, sending a fine mist of dark Eldar blood flying from its crackling blade, and struck down one of the other squires with a single disemboweling thrust. His feet touched the ground, and he brought the sword up to meet the already predetermined attack from the last remaining squire, and then, shockingly, the Drakari lord was upon him. The Drakari commander fought with two short, hand-held, multi-bladed weapons, which were part dagger, part scythe, and part glaive. This manner of combat with these dangerously unfamiliar weapons was furious and lethally uncompromising. Doradios, with the longer and more powerful weapon, was forced back on the defensive, his sword weaving a barrier before him to fend off the barrage of stabbing thrusts and sudden lunging sweeps from his opponent's blades. Crystallised matter was smeared across the blade edges of both those weapons, and Doradios had no doubt that death, slow and agonising, lurked there. Forewarned by his prescient senses, the Aspect Lord saw the last remaining squire unfurl some kind of long whip-like weapon. The tails of the weapon were woven together from black, glistening cord, which twisted sinew-like with grotesque life. The Jukari warrior lashed out with the weapon, again worn by his prescience. Doradios twisted away on instinct, out of reach of those twitching cord tails, just as his prescient vision screamed at him in warning, showing him the mistake he had just made. The Drakari Lord was on him instantly, one of the poison-frosted blades in its hand, flashing past the Aspect Lord's parry to slash mercilessly through Doradios's fatally exposed throat. Feeling the blade's chill bite through his flesh, feeling the hot rush of blood from his severed jugular, feeling the first burning sting of the poison seeping through his flesh and veins, Doradios followed the guidance shown to him by his dimming prescient vision, hurling his power sword out with the last of his failing strength. The corpse of the last of the Drakari squires, his body transfixed by the hurled blade, hit the ground even before that of Doradios. Kailasa, of the Cabal of the Poisoned Heart, stood over the corpse of his victim, dispassionately watching the tremors and convulsions run through the dead Aspect Lord's body. The corpse would retain this grotesque semblance of life for hours, he knew, as the venom ate its way through its nervous system, firing off random pain signals amongst dead nerve endings and lifeless brain matter. He lifted the blade with which he had dealt the final, masterful killing blow, licking its edge with his tongue, and relishing the taste of the crystallised venom mixed with fresh blood. After a lifetime of patronage of the many poison bars and venom-fest houses of Camorra, Kalisa was a connoisseur of all toxins and poisons, 
and was completely immune to many of the more mundane ones such as this. Still, mixed with his victim's blood, the effects of the venom gave him a pleasingly exhilarating sensation, which helped offset his anger and impatience at the unexpectedly costly losses the craft world weaklings had inflicted upon his force. He reached down to the corpse of the defeated craft world warrior, casually removing its helm and plucking out the small jewel set into its forehead. He ran it between the delicately talon-tipped fingers of his gauntlet, peering into its misty, opaque depths. He sniffed at it and then licked it. Exarch, he breathed to himself in pleasure, pleased that there should be such a fine soul prize to show for his victory. He threw it over his shoulder into the midst of the pack of warp beasts behind him. Immediately, the creatures began tearing and clawing at each other, fighting over the rare morsel. One of the homunculi snickered in morbid pleasure as the creatures rapidly tore into each other. Kalisa smiled. Afterwards, when this mission was over, he would lead a hunt for the victor of the battle, for the largest and most ferocious of the pack, and reclaim his sole prize, ripping it out of the creature's belly with his own hands. He turned, sensing the lurking, expectant presence of the mandrakes behind them. He looked at them for a long moment, holding them in his gaze, four pairs of eyes full of hungry malice, four dead, gaunt faces stared back at him. Find the Farsia, he told them simply. The storm was lifting now. Cradriel sat at the entrance to the shallow gully where they had chosen to seek shelter and, most likely he knew, make their last stand. The landscape of Stabia, revealed now under the lifting storm, was even bleaker than he had imagined. From where he sat, though, everything seemed bleak at present. Only moments ago he had heard the psychic death scream of Doradios and was still mourning the Aspect Lord's loss. He had already foreseen the warrior's death, had caught glimpses of it in amongst the shifting deceptions of the Shadow Point, but the inevitability of the moment made it no less sorrowful. The Shadow Point. The Ferrishaw Co. It was here at last, all around them. They were caught in the midst of it, and his farsight was useless now, leaving him just another weak old man. Depending on the strength of others, sacrificing the lives of the young to prolong his own already overextended existence. Honoured kinsman, Lord Farseer, you should not be here. It is too dangerous to be here alone. He turned, seeing Freya, the striking scorpion warrior, who was kin to him. Her tone was politely respectful, but also scolding. Her stance and that of the two aspect warriors who stood with her was firm and unyielding. He was under her protection, a duty which she took with deadly earnestness. He allowed himself to be taken back to the others. His discussion with the human called Horst had not been concluded, and further conversation with him would be a pleasing and enlightening experience, and would help pass the time before the Drukhari inevitably tracked them down to this lonely and desolate place. Suddenly he paused, turning as he sensed something else out there. Freya sensed his disquiet, as did the other two warriors. Karadjil sensed the hot psychic rush as their combat senses bristled in agitation and hands tensed on weapons. You sense something, honoured kinsman. Karadriel remained motionless, staring out into the depths of the storm, staring out with his farsight into whatever hint of the future had briefly been revealed to him by the mocking, blank face of the shadow point. He saw nothing, 
not even the phantoms of false ghost futures. It is nothing, Kinson, he answered finally, just the dying breath of the storm. He allowed them to lead him off again, mentally mulling over the lie he had just told them. He did not yet know what it was, but something was out there. Something was coming. The burning god strode through the dying storm, and the storm retreated and parted before it in fear. It had exited the webway, through a long disused portal amongst ruins, far to the south. Nothing lived on this barren world, but the wind whispered its forbidden name in awe, and the sand and rocks beneath its feet trembled at its passing. Its pace was steady and measured, its progress constant and immutable. It continued on, knowing that the end was close, but not knowing whether it would be destined to arrive in time to intervene in the fates which converged at that end point. Well, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. We're almost there. The end point. The end point? <laughs> the last bit will be coming uh, very, very soon, within a few days of this one being released. Thank you all for pay for you know, listening to this and liking the videos, please do like this video. Let me know in the comments what you think. Share it to anyone you think might be interested. Subscribe if you're not subscribed. And if you'd like to support the channel, like these heroes, all of you, I love you all. Thank you for your support. Genuinely. It doesn't sound like I'm being genuine. It's a problem I've got in life. People think I'm joking all the time. But I am being sincere. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And uh, if you'd like to support the channel as well, become a YouTube member. Become a member on Patreon or become a member on Subscribestar. Either one of them would be fantastic. But uh, please do like the video and let me know what you think. And uh, I'll be back again with the final part, which will probably be a big two hours. I think it'll be about two hours, maybe more. But around two hours, uh, final part of Shadow Point. Thank you all for watching again. Ta-ra. Bye-bye.